Oh, hello. <laughs> one more. I've, one... I've used Craig before, and 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 he always scares me. I'm. We're fine. It's welcome... fine. It's fine. <laughs> welcome, welcome back to. We're keeping this in now. Welcome back to <laughs> Dollars and Dragons. Uh, today I have with me uh, Nala. If you'd like to introduce yourself, Nala. Hi everyone. My name is Nala or Jay. I go by both. My pronouns are they them. I am on Twitter at Nala Wu and at Nala Draws. If you'd like to see my art, I am a professional illustrator and art director working full time in TTRPGs. Besides art, I'm also a voice actor, sensitivity reader, and cultural consultant, TTRPG content creator, and professional actual play stream performer and i'm very happy to be here thank you yeah great to have you i am actually super excited to have you on uh my community knows you as the artist in my server uh i have just the one artist if you commission nala for a portrait uh for your character or whatever you get a free session from me and that's something that we started doing i guess last year right it's been like six months isn't it since like you started like taking those commissions here and there yeah that over the summer right. Over the time summer, is right? soup. Yeah. Yeah. Time, time is, is soup. a word. Yeah. Time is a word soup. That's true. Um, okay. Now, now I have to ask this question that I, I didn't tell you that I was going to ask you. You were really confused when I first started reaching out to you, weren't you? And like, you just didn't know, like, hey, what's the angle here, right? Yeah. Just, just a little. <laughs> this is white person DMing me right now. <laughs> well, like, because I didn't, I didn't know who you were. Um, uh -huh. And I think you were fairly new to Twitter at that point, too. Um, mm -hmm. And, I was just kind of like, I don't like I didn't have like many mutuals with you either. Like when I get new clients, I will definitely just kind of like check them out online, see who they are, because, um, you know, I don't want to take work from people who are bad for whatever reason. Um, so I'll, I'll usually scope out the Twitter, check the likes, you know, do do the normal vetting stuff. If I have mutuals with them, that's an automatic plus. Um, or, you know, I scroll through their likes or their retweets, see sort of the, the kinds of opinions and stuff that they interact with. And yeah, so it's, it's you know, and, and I, I was just kind of like, I, I didn't know what exactly you were looking for. Um, and uh, it's kind of funny because I, I I explain this to my friends sometimes because I I will just talk about like oh I'm doing a portrait for um, this one thing that I have and my friends have joked you've been adopted by a a person this is this is kind of like like back in ye old times when like rich people would like pick an artist and just have them on retainer and then like just get them to draw whatever they wanted <laughs> I'm like that's that's basically what it is <laughs> yeah you're the community artist here for my discord yeah and the community is my community has grown quite a bit since then and of course like my i guess my presence online and everything but yeah i mean i feel like i fully disqualify myself from so many jobs and so many opportunities because of my twitter presence sometimes but i'm just like okay whatever because i know that i don't have a super polished like corporate social media profile uh maybe if i end up working for a corporate i'm in the process of interviewing for for someone right now but um you know, maybe if that happens, I'll have to get serious on Twitter. But as of right now, it's just like a mess of me just being a trans disaster. And my players already experienced like who I am. Like if you join my game, that's part of the experience. That's part of what you pay for, in my opinion. You can kind of see like my bed that's unmade right here in the corner of my camera. The viewers can't see that, though. Mm, it's a secret. <laughs> the, lis the listeners, yeah. Um, but, enough, but enough about my sex life. That's not what the podcast is about. <laughs> 
if we if we pivot to um what was it like being a freelancer while you were still in college and when did you graduate and all that stuff like when did you start taking work as a freelancer uh yeah so i officially graduated um in the fall of 2021 from the savannah college of art and design i got a bfa in illustration with a concentration in concept design and visual development for animated films and games um and uh i didn't walk um because i only do one graduation ceremony a year and since i missed my my graduation ceremony the the previous spring because i was supposed to walk spring 2021 um i missed that one uh so i didn't walk until spring 2022 uh but i started doing freelance work in the tabletop space around spring of 2019 i think is when i sort of joined twitter um and I started taking work, I think, that fall, it must have been. Um, and it was difficult um, because I was a full-time student and uh, going to art school, juggling all of my class projects and the illustrations that I had to make for class, as well as these freelance requests. And it unfortunately resulted in me having to turn down work, which was really sad. <laughs> um because I, I definitely was missing out on some opportunities that I would have really liked to take. But, um, you know, by the end of my time in school, I was really learning the value of work-life balance and learning about, you know, not overloading myself with work um, because burnout is every artist's worst enemy besides maybe carpal tunnel um but if we if we take that as like the the, the mental enemy and the physical enemy those are the two bbegs of artists in my opinion is burnout and carpal tunnel um and uh so i was definitely learning that the hard way um with some of my classes just having like a crap ton of work uh and deadlines piling up and all of that because you know i have adhd and um that makes doing freelance work more challenging i think than neurotypical folks um because i struggle with executive dysfunction and all of those other things that i've had to learn methods and tricks to keep myself on task uh, and to get all my work done on time, which I've been pretty successful in doing. So that's really cool. Uh, but um, it's definitely been a learning curve. Um, but uh, some of my professors were gracious enough to let me turn in my freelance work for class. Uh, they were willing to stretch the rules and the prompts a little so that I could turn in my freelance work for class and basically essentially double dip in that I was getting class credit for my work, but then I also was getting paid for it and it was going to get published. And my professors were really great about that and they were very cool about it because they they were um, generally very proud of me for getting work while I was still in school. And they were just kind of like, any real world experience is going to beat whatever I can teach you. Um, I remember one of my professors specifically saying that when I was like really nervous to be like, hey, can I, I just got a, I just got a job. <laughs> is it possible I could <laughs> turn this in? And yeah, so I had some professors who were very, very cool about that, um, especially because I was starting to get work around the time that um, I was in a bunch of classes where a lot of the projects were self-guided anyways. So um, I just had to pitch it to the professor and be like, eh, can I do this? And they're all like, yeah, cool. And then I had to do the little song and dance talking to my art directors and being like, hey, I know I signed an NDA. Um, would I be able to turn in this project for class? Like I can I can like not tell them what it's for, like, you know, where where in this NDA 
MBA? Um, can can I sort of walk this line? And my art directors were also all very, very cool about it because they were like, yes, like absolutely, you can turn this in. Um, and they weren't even like super stringent on like, you can't say what this is for. Like they, they were pretty chill about it because they also saw that as a learning opportunity for my classmates uh, just to see like, oh, this is, you know, what actually working with a client is like. And they were happy to let me do that. So that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I could see how that would be nerve wracking to just approach your art, uh, your art director and be like, hey, I'm a I'm a literal child. Can I turn this in for school? <laughs> Not a child, but I'm still in school right now. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely worried about coming across as like unprofessional, but I think they were just kind of like... Um, they 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 were really chill about it so that was really nice <laughs> yeah that's that's super sweet i i love that um i think back to when i was starting writing and i was you know turning stuff in for my uh, I don't know, like English, creative, whatever, um, at the time. And of course, those sort of creative writing classes and those courses and stuff are very limited for just a standard English class. You have to take a specific class to really get that sort of experience. Um, and I remember when I was in sixth or seventh grade writing like the most terrible conglomeration of like Suikoden and like Wheel of Time and like all these other influences as my first like piece of work. And I got accused of plagiarism because I was a student with an F in English because I never paid attention, but I read all the time. And I was like, this was my first, you know, it eventually translated into me like creating. And then I think a year later, I turned into that like same teacher, like here is my word vomit of 80,000 words as like an eighth grader. And they were like, this is amazing that you have written this much. I don't care if this is good or not. This is amazing. So, and then me off and very, on. A very funny story, um, which ahead. I will keep short. Um, I've been working on a fantasy setting, which now is a science fantasy setting. Um, I have, I will link it to you. Uh -huh. um, my pitch deck. This was, this was... SCAD doesn't do thesis projects for illustration students, which always irked me because I would have loved to do a thesis. Um, but if I had done a thesis, this would have been like the, the body of work that I did for this would have been my thesis if we had had one officially. Mm -hmm. um, but this fantasy setting, which the working name is uh, Arjunbai, um, Arumbai, uh, I started working on in like 2015 or 2016. Like it's, it's, it, it's been, um, yeah, it was about 2015. Um, I started working on that back in high school and, uh, this whole thing came about because prior to making this setting, I was writing fan fiction for, um, Frozen, the Disney movie. And, uh, there exists online an entire novel's worth of frozen fan fiction that I wrote. And I changed like pretty much everything about the characters, about the story, like the pretty much like the names were like the only thing that was like the same. And then at one point I realized like, this is my own creation. Like I created my own whole characters and story. And, you know, maybe I should make this not fan fiction. <laughs> so I took those characters and the personalities that I developed and I started creating my own thing. And that was actually what inspired the original creation of this fantasy setting. <laughs> yeah um and uh it just grew from there but it's kind of funny because i think about this thing that i hold dear to my heart um so much and think wow this all came from frozen fan fiction didn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
uh, that's how, you know, that's how folks, you know, get started is they, they love something, they love a story and they want to create something like it to evoke that. And I think at first, perhaps that's just sort of a, an exercise of entertaining yourself, perhaps as you're young, um, and probably. No, absolutely. Like this is, this is why I love fan art and I love like fan fiction. Like I feel like some professionals turn their nose up at like fan work. Um, because they think it less than original creations. But in my opinion, just knowing where I came from and where I started, for new artists, I feel like one of the hardest things is to keep motivation and to keep that inspiration and that drive and that passion to keep creating because um, art is one of those things where you just have to practice. You're not going to get better unless you practice. And practice can become monotonous and boring. And um, in my opinion, if drawing fan, fan art is what keeps you going and keeps you practicing and keeps you creating, then do it. Because sometimes people need that hyperfixation or that um, one thing that they're just like super interested in. And if you and if you need that to keep your interest in the art of creation, then by all means do it. Because I feel like art should be fun. And, you know, learning the basics is important, but for especially for early artists, young artists, um, I think fan fiction and or fan art is very valuable to the learning process because I think it keeps people interested in creating stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And part of I know my development a lot as a writer came from participating in like text role play in like these fandoms that I was a part of. And yeah, of course you're you're <laughs> tell us about your fandoms I mean, that you <laughs> I did so much role playing. Um most of it was frozen actually. Uh -huh. Um but before that, um, one of my hyperfixations that lasted literally four years was ancient Egypt. Um, and this is so cringe. Um, like, just imagine someone who is hyperfixating on ancient Egypt, and I can guarantee you I was worse. Um, but uh, I was writing and role-playing characters uh, from ancient Egypt um, with some just random people online. Mm -hmm. um, and I was super, super into that. Um, and that's where I originally got my start in writing and writing mm -hmm. prose and writing dialogue and all of that stuff was definitely from those role plays. Um, but I also was a diehard Hunger Games fan. I was oh, a super course. fan. Um, and and I still actually love the Hunger Games. Like it, it 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 is something that I've definitely mellowed out about. I still look at those books and those movies as something that was very important to me as a teenager, and something that still inspires me now. Um, and uh, actually, in college, like way after I you know quote unquote got over it, um, I gave my public speaking. I had a public speaking class, and my final for that class was a ten minute presentation. Um, we could present about anything. Um, it had to be about like one of the four big topics that we we're sort of learning about in class, um, like race, gender, uh, sexuality, and ability and disability, I think, were the four things that we were sort of studying in class because the whole shtick uh, was about how like there are people who are different from us and we need to learn how to communicate with people who are different from us in order to be effective communicators or something. It, it, was, it, was, it was a very good class. Loved my professor. Um, long story short, our final had to be, we could present about anything. It just had to be tied to one of those things. So my presentation was uh, gender as performance in the Hunger Games. And it was really fun revisiting this thing that I loved when I was younger to actually give a fully academic uh, analysis presentation about it and to, you know, re-look re -look at these characters and the, the source material.
uh, which is really cool. <laughs> and I love, especially for young people, and I know I use this, uh, either creative art or um, performance or writing or anything really that gives you the opportunity to explore other cultures and different perspectives, I think is incredibly valuable for young people uh, instead of staying within your own uh small microcosm of a community. I think it's pretty important, especially for your development as a good human being. So from there, uh, you took some jobs when you were in college. How'd you yes. get your start in the industry? Was it there? Uh, yeah, so um, I feel like 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 a lot of people, um, I started taking off on Twitter because of discourse. Uh, <laughs> uh <-oh. laughs> like like I had I I I tweeted a thread um, that I wrote like literally I had just woken up and I just needed to vent and I wrote a long thread about um, it was just me listing things that would make me as a queer trans person of color want to leave your D and D game and I used your as oh. sort of like a general your like these are just things that me as a multiple marginalized person make me uncomfortable and stuff that you should be aware of when running games and it was mostly event posts but I was listing like all of these things and uh, it took off it was kind of that thing that like immediately it was just all sorts of tons of retweets at that point on Twitter you couldn't limit who who can reply to you that was not a feature oh, yeah. yet um, so you know I just like tweeted that got ready for class went to class and then um, on our like break I, I checked my phone again and it was like blowing up and I was like, whoa, what is happening right now? Um, and let's just say, uh, you know, I got a lot of people who followed me from that because they agreed and they saw me as someone that they valued my perspective on things. So I was gaining a lot of followers. Um, lots of trolls as well. Baby's first death threat. Uh, I got a couple of those. Oh. Um, lots of messages actually in my inbox that were incredibly cruel. Um, every slur imaginable, even the ones that aren't directed towards people of my marginalization. I was getting all of them and I was like, come on, guys. <laughs> Um, and wow. at some point, like I was, I, I mean, I was reading all of them because unfortunately you had to read them in order to delete them. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was reading all of them just to delete and report them. Um, and it was just kind of like, at, at some point I was just kind of like, come on, be more creative than that. I've heard that one already. Come on. <laughs> And like, it really sucks that I had that I sort of, you know, I had already developed a really thick skin for that kind of thing. Because um, prior to Twitter, I was on Instagram in high school. And um, by the end of high school, I had gained 50,000 followers on Instagram. And I was doing sponsorships and like all of that stuff. And um, I would get recognized in public. It was really weird. And it did a number on my mental health as a teenager growing up uh, when I was heavily relying on affirmation from random strangers on the internet to affirm my self-worth and that's stuff that I'm still unlearning now um but uh I, I I had a thick skin from my experience on Instagram so it was just kind of like ah more death threats but like it, it definitely felt more personal um frustrating but uh that's sort of how I started becoming known in the space I think uh was from that I met a lot of people who are still my friends now from that tweet who found me through that tweet um and then I started getting more involved in the space and I saw a um, application or interest form for uh, the Unbreakable Anthology who were releasing their second volume. Um, and Unbreakable, if you don't know what it is, is a anthology of books uh, completely created, written, and illustrated by all Asian creators. The first volume 
um, was specifically for D&D 5th edition, and the second one was um, a whole bunch of different systems. I know there's Blades in the Dark. I'm pretty sure there's a D&D thing in there as well. Um, but there's a lot, a lot of more systems represented in the second one, which was called Unbreakable Revolution, which is the one that I ended up doing um, in illustrations for. Um, and uh, that was my first professional project. Uh, it is available on uh, Drive-Thru RPG if you want to pick it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, from there, uh, let's talk about your life is like as a freelancer now that you're out of college and how that was for a while. I know that you have other roles that we'll, we'll end up talking about, but like being a, you were full-time freelancing for a while, right? Yes. Um, in, in the past year, 2022, I was a full-time freelancer. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What was your, what was your schedule like? And if we're talking about, um, if you feel comfortable enough to talk about like, how is it, do you get so much done as a freelancer in spite of, you know, uh, having ADHD and things like that? Like, I would love to talk to you about that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a huge learning curve. Like I said, like learning to work with myself and finding methods um, that help me rather than hinder me. Um, I've heard a lot of bad ADHD advice from neurotypical people. Um, and it was sort of like me just having to like parse through and see what is actually useful and what is just neurotypical BS. Um, and uh, uh, my sort of thing uh, is I'm sort of held to the whimsies of my brain. So whenever my brain decides, ah, it's time to work, is when I get to work. Um, and so and so getting that focus is um, sometimes a challenge. Uh, but um, I work typically all seven days of the week, but I don't work for as long each day. Um, also, like, I can be sitting at my desk and, like, quote-unquote working, but, like, <laughs> maybe about, like, half of that time is actually spent drawing. Um, and then, of course, there's all the other things you have to do as a freelancer um, because, you know, I tell this to artists who are, are interested in freelancing or want to know what it's like. And it's like, you expect that freelance illustrating is going to be you know, mostly drawing. But I would argue that like 40% of your time is spent doing emails, being your own social media person, marketing yourself online, like all of those things um, are so important, doing paperwork, uh, sending out invoices, like all of this stuff that is decidedly not art, you still have to do uh, because unlike when you work for a company, you are your own boss, which is both a positive and a negative. <laughs> and for me, um, I've had to develop lots of systems and organizational tips uh, and tricks so that I can stay organized. Um, I uh, obviously use email as my primary form of communication because you can put labels on your emails, which helps me color code and organize things so that when I'm looking down my inbox, I can quickly see, ah, that's what this is, or, hmm, you know, uh, can sort things, compartmentalize, like, what I need to focus on today. Um, and then I use Trello to track uh, for my individual projects. Um, I'm not sponsored by any of these people, by the way, but I love Trello. <laughs> Would highly recommend it. A great service. For, yeah, it's it's yeah, very good. You can color management. code and yeah, and you can just update them like notepads or like color coding notepads, but digital, right? Yeah, and it's very tactile too because you can like drag things from different um, piles basically. So that lets me sort of like track where in the process for each of my ongoing projects because that's the other thing about freelancing is that I'm typically working on multiple things at a time um, especially in the way that I work um, I rely on client feedback 
And um, if clients don't get back to me in like a timely manner where I will send them a work in progress and be like, what do you think of this? Or I'll send like three different color comps and be like, uh, choose one. Uh, and then I'm waiting. Then, I, you know, I can't do anything else until they get back to me. So um, I'm tr I usually try to juggle like two or three things at a time so that if I'm waiting on one client, I can be working on something else because time is money. And I don't want to be held up by one client who's not getting back to me because they're just not checking their email for whatever reason. Um, like I don't want to be losing, losing out on um, opportunities and stuff. So usually I'm juggling multiple things at a time. So Trello makes that really easy for me to sort of see like what I'm working on, what's on deck, et cetera. Um, but yeah, so I'll typically like wake up at like 11 or something like I'm not a morning person. So I sleep in um, and then I go downstairs, you know, eat lunch and then come back up. And then I usually work in the afternoon, take a break for dinner. And then um, if I don't have like a stream, because I also do like actual play performance things. If I don't have a stream that night, I'll typically continue working or I will call it a day and decide to do something fun at night, like either like watching a TV show, watching a movie, playing games, hanging out with friends, what have you. Um, but I get somewhere between, like anywhere between two to six hours of work in a day, sometimes more if I'm like really going on a project. Um, but yeah, it really varies from day to day. And, and it also varies depending on how much work I have at the time, because with freelancing, it is very, uh, it fluctuates a lot. Um, some days, some months you'll have a ton of work, other months will be slower. And that's definitely one of the biggest cons I think of freelancing is that it's not steady work and you constantly have to be online promoting yourself and being like, I'm available for work. Hire me. You should hire me. Like check out my work, check out my portfolio. And like, I feel so silly sometimes just constantly like screaming on the internet being like, look at my work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like that's definitely something you have to get used to if you want to do freelancing is is being comfortable with promoting yourself promoting your work and and knowing your worth and being like yes these are my rates you can you know hire me for these rates or if you can't afford that you know I'm willing to work with you to figure out a style that does fit your budget or maybe I'm not the artist for you and that's fine because there's tons of artists out there and um, you're, you're probably able to find someone who can work within the scope of your project that you're Speaking of freelancing and figuring out what to charge, how to promote yourself, um, I did want to ask you for the artists who may be listening, how did you decide what your rate would be? Were you basing it on where you thought you were a while ago or did someone give you a recommendation? Was there a resource you used? How did you come to that conclusion? Uh, so um, my professors in art school were very adamant about do not charge an hourly rate because um, as you get better at art, you'll get faster at art. And if you're charging an hourly rate as you get better, you end up losing money because a, a piece that would used to take you an hour, let's say your hourly rate is, I don't know, $50 an hour, you charge $50 for a piece that takes you an hour. And then one year later, that same client comes to you and is like, can I have another one of these, please? And you're like, okay, uh, but you've gotten better in that year. And now that same piece takes you half an hour. So now the client only has to pay $25 for a better piece of art. Um, and then the alternative for that is that, oh, you can just raise your rates. But then this client comes back and they're like, um, 
you know, I want to hire you for that same thing. And you're like, oh, well, you know, last year you paid $50 an hour, uh, but now I charge $100 an hour. And then the client will be like, what? Why are you raising your rates? Uh, so um, I've just been told, do not charge an hourly. But to set your rates as a flat rate, you should be thinking about how much you want to be making hourly um, as an average for what you're charging. So for example, um, my portraits uh, that I do for like my character portraits, they take me about, it really depends actually on the character, like really simple designs I could probably finish in 45 minutes. Some of the more complicated designs or if there's a lot of back and forth with the client will take me like two hours. Um, but I've set that flat rate at $80. Um, and that's sort of just the flat rate. Like these, these full color portraits, they start at 80. If you have more details or, you know, complicated design or what have you, it will be more. And um, none of that includes my commercial licensing, which is, um, for me, is an additional 30% of the base price. And then if you're going to print it in something, that's another 30% on top of that. Um, but that's that's basically how I set them. And then also every year you should be adjusting your rates. Your rates should get more expensive. At least adjust for inflation so you can Google what the inflation rate is and raise your rates by that much if you want to keep them, quote unquote, the same. But you should be raising your rates each year because most artists improve with time. And as you get better, you should be charging your worth. And that's definitely something I advocate for all artists because um, I see a lot of people charging under what I feel like they should be or could be um, for how good their art is. Yeah, I think it comes with the conundrum of and I deal with similar situation as far as like pricing and availability for freelancing when I'm a professional GM. I could charge $15 per seat, right? I only have so much time in the day and I only have so much work I can complete. So regardless, I'm going to have the same amount of clients as my cap. You're going to have the same amount of art that you can produce on a weekly basis as a cap, right? So you might as well be making what, uh, you know, your career is progressing as you're getting better um, to eventually put you in a position to where you're not going to be endangering yourself financially any longer. Yeah. I think that's the goal, right? And here's the other thing too, is that like, sometimes like artists will be like, I don't want to raise my rates because, you know, I, I only do this for fun or I do this as a hobby. And, you know, I have a full-time job that I, you know, I make rent every month and, you know, what have you, I do art for fun. So, you know, I'm okay charging only $20 for this thing or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think people can charge what they want. Um, but I would just argue that, you know, clients aren't just paying for your time. They're paying for the years of practice that you've put in. They're paying for your experience experience. They're paying for, you know, things that I don't even think you can quantify. Like when you hire me, you're not just hiring me to put pen to paper and to draw you a thing, um, you know, because I do a lot of visual research. I've done a lot of training, you know, like as a character artist specifically, um, I have extensive training in portraiture, like formal life drawing portraiture, drawing from life, um, gesture sketches, life drawing, like all of that. Those are things that I specifically trained in and focused in on because I like drawing character portraits. And all of that training and all of that time put into the foundations allows me to bust out these portraits really quickly. Like if I were to sit down right now and have you just sit for me, I could probably sketch you in like five minutes and it will look like you. It'll be a sketch, but it will look like you. But you don't get that without years of practice. Like I've been doing art for like a decade now. Um, and that's all that time and passion and all of that. Like that's what you pay for when you hire an artist, not just me, any artist. You want to do my portrait? 
dude. <laughs> Let's talk about me. <laughs> um, no, that'd be cool. Actually, I think I should hire you to do my portrait. That'd be fun. Yeah, I do. I do do um, icons like uh, social media icons. I haven't done one in a while, but I do do them and they're very fun. I would, yeah, I I kind of need, like, an official, like, hey, this is my picture. Like, I, don't, I don't know what to put it. I don't know what to say about it. Uh, my headshot. Um, I don't really want, like, a camera headshot. I would like a piece of art, though. Um, so we'll talk, we'll talk about that off air. But, like, yeah, I'm, we're, we're going with that. We're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Um, as long as you're, as long as you have time. <laughs> I don't want to impose, but as long as you, we can fit it in your schedule. Um, I have some okay. really funky styles that I think you might like that are, that, that don't take me very long and that are very unique and I think you'll like them. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Um, okay. Uh, so let's talk about Coyote and Crow. Yeah. Let's talk about working on the project, uh, what it meant to you and like as far as was it like a normal job for you or was it sort of different? Uh, Coyote and Crow, first of all, if you haven't heard of it, um, Coyote and Crow is a really cool original game system um, ideated and written by indigenous creators. Um, they imagine a world in which North America was never colonized. And it's this really cool like science fiction fantasy like futuristic world um uh without colonialism um and the visual aesthetic for the books um or for the for that setting is really cool um and i was lucky enough to be one of i believe only five non-indigenous artists who were asked to work on it um a majority of the team are all indigenous folks um and uh, if you look in the credits of the book, it's really cool because um, the indigenous creators who worked on the book list uh, their tribe affiliations uh, with their credits, which is really, really cool. And there's been a lot of like uh, work uh, within the Coyote and Crow team to get this book into the hands of indigenous children um, across the country, which is really cool. Um, anyways, consider checking it out. It's a really cool book and um, there's a lot of resources written into the text for non-Indigenous folks who want to play the game because um, as the book says, like they want non-Indigenous people to play this game because I hear a lot of like non-Indigenous people, specifically white people saying things like, I, you know, I want to play this game, but like, what if I do it wrong? Or what if I, you know, like, I feel weird playing this game where you play indigenous characters. Like, isn't that bad? And um, I, I know that uh, the the writer, the, the project manager and project lead, Connor Alexander, he's talked about this too. But he's like, literally, this book like holds your hand through it. There's several sections in the book where it's like, if you're indigenous, here's something you can do to like include your tribe um, or specific traditions from your people and your uh, culture um, into this. Because the other thing is that uh, everything in this book, they, they created a, a fictional uh, tribe basically um, uh, for the book. Uh, they don't pull from any like IRL things uh, directly, um, but they encourage indigenous folks who are playing the game to integrate their own tribe's culture into their characters and into the story. Um, and so there are sections that'll be like, if you're indigenous, maybe do this. And then there's a whole section for if you're not indigenous, here are, here are ways that you can, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Here are ways that you can interact with this content uh, with, uh, you know, even though you're not indigenous, like here, here are tropes to avoid. Here are things that um, you, you can and cannot do or what have you. And like the book literally holds your hand through it. Like, like just, just play the game. It's, it's a, it's a really cool system. Um, 
Uh, but anyways, the project was really, really cool. I got to work with Connor and the specific writer. I am blanking on the writer's name, but the both of them, I worked with both of them very closely in the creation of my work. And being uh, non-Indigenous myself, um, both Connor and this other writer um, were very, very giving and gracious um, in helping me uh, create the design for this character. Um, because, you know, obviously I I am not Indigenous and I want to be respectful of their culture. And they were both incredibly um giving and uh, uh, were incredibly helpful in guiding me with their insight um, on the visual design for Dear Woman, which is the um, character uh, that I did uh, spot art for. It is on page 429 in the book. Um, and so, uh, you know, every step of the way, every little design thing that I wanted to put into her design, I was, you know, showing them and being like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Um, making sure to, you know, pull from um, specific indigenous things instead of just generalization. One of the first notes that I got from them is that we are not doing brown. We're not putting them in brown um, because that only reinforces what non-indigenous people think indigenous people look like. If you look at the art for the book, there's a ton of neon colors, bright colors, bold colors. And that was a specific decision from the creative leads um, for the visual, the visuals for the project was that we're, they're, they're, they're like, we're not doing browns. We're not doing that. <laughs> we're going to make this bold. We're going to make this, you know. And so I got to create a really cool like sci-fi design for a traditional turkey feather fan, which is something that I was told and guided by the two of them for a specific prop that a dear woman can be holding. And so I got to create this really cool design for like a very futuristic version of that. It still has the turkey feathers, but the, the handle of it, bright sci-fi like really cool um and the specific earrings that i have dear woman wearing in my illustration are the like porcupine quill earrings um but instead of like the porcupine quill like brown on the ends it's like gold so they look dipped in gold and uh she's wearing a like black leather harness and this really cool like sci-fi dress with like cutouts and like I had a lot of fun <laughs> and um, I definitely am very honored to be trusted with the subject matter matter by these two people. Um, William Thompson is his is 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 the other uh, writer's name. But uh, the the entire project Coyote and Crow is really cool and they're doing more things, not just um, not just the the system guide, the book for like how to play. Um, I got to work on another project, which has not come out yet, so I can't say much about what I did, but I got to do more art for them, and I am still incredibly honored that not only did I get to work on the first thing, that Connor asked me back, um, and that was very, That's very a good nice. sign. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good sign. That means that they probably like working with you. Yeah, uh, that's dope. I love that. And I love... Um, we we've kind of I guess brought this up twice now, like a safe exploration of different cultures. I think that's super cool. Definitely an um, advocate for that. Um, from the beginning, I've always said like the the thing that inspires me and the thing that drives me to do what I do has been and has always been since high school to increase the positive representation of marginalized groups in media. And if there's anything I can do to do that, I will do um, because I believe that every person to look in the media and see characters that look like them and who share their culture who are not just the bad guys or not just a stereotype 
because bad representation, I think, is worse than no representation because bad representation only perpetuates stereotypes and usually negative associations with certain marginalized groups. And I will always be an advocate for positive representation in everything. Wonderful. I'm going to go grab something off the shelf. So one moment. Okay, cool. <laughs> this is for Friday later. Do, 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 do. What page is your art on in Unkaiju Goddesses? Pop quiz time. Um, um, I don't know. It was the Mistra art. Um, okay. My book is over there and um, behind a pile of stuff. No, I got but it. I, I did got the... It. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, 119, right? Yes, that is me. And then if yeah, you yeah. flip like two pages, uh -huh. I did I did a piece of spot art. I think it's two pages. Uh, nope, one more page. Flip one more page. Uh, nope, flip one more page. <laughs> nope, one more. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I did that is. one. <laughs> I recognize that was your website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> if you want to break open your Uncaged Goddesses book and look, pages 126 and uh, 118. It's right before the A World Unbroken, A Woman Unchained by Amber Litke and Sadie Lowry. Uh, level yeah. 18 adventure, the goddess Mistra. Mistra? Mistra? I think it's Mistra. I, I don't okay. know. I, I've been saying Mistra, at least. Yeah, you can tell I didn't play the, the old goddess editions. Goddess magic. Yeah. What was it like working with this team and on this project? And um, how long did this take you? Because this is incredible art. So... Thank you so much. Um, okay, so Uncaged Goddesses was a really cool project. Um, I loved working with the whole team. It was honestly such a great experience. Uh, as far as that actual piece, I can check and I can tell you exactly how much time because I do all my work on Procreate and Procreate oh, really? actually tracks how long things take. So let me... That's useful. Let me go see. This piece was 16 hours. Oh. <laughs> okay yes 16 that's just, hours that's only like in the program with your brush not research not research time yeah. how much yeah. was your research time you think um i don't know it was so long ago because this is one of the pieces that i got to turn in for class actually um hmm. <laughs> um it was for my uh i was taking a, a a environments props and structures class and um as you can see, there is a little bit of an environment and a little bit of perspective. And I got to turn yeah. this in for my final and it was great. <laughs> wow. Nice. Game in the um, system. Game in the yep. system. Got it. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but yeah, this piece was a joy to create. Um, I got to work with um, Sadie and Amber who were really cool to bounce ideas off of. Because the first thing I said to them was, I am going to draw Mistra as a black woman. And I, I and I and I said like, is that okay? Because uh, even if they had said no, I still would have fought for it. But like, when I went to like the official like D and D uh, descriptions of her, she's described as a woman with like thick, dark black hair. That's not a white woman. <laughs> That's not a white woman. And like every other art I saw of Mistra, she was either white with black hair or she was like racially ambiguously brown right like like she's she's like she could be spicy white like italian or something but like it was very like racially ambiguous yeah spicy white <laughs> spicy spicy white like it's a zingy marinara like 
Damn. Damn. Um, but I was like, I would love to see Mistra as a woman of color, specifically a black woman, um, because she's very, very powerful. And I thought that that representation would be really cool. Yeah. And they both were super for it. And I was like, hell yeah, let's go. And so I did a lot of research into various uh, black protective hairstyles. Because she is described as having really long hair. And I was like, you know, I could draw braids. Braids are really cool. But I also was like, I wonder what else is out there. Because there's so, like, the diversity of, like, like black protective hairstyles. There, there's so much out there. So I ended up on uh, Senegalese Twists, which, which is what I drew for her hair. And I looked up a crap ton of reference um, for how, how these um, twists look in hair and... This specific hairstyle, I actually found a reference of someone who had a, who had a very similar had the twists, but then also like twisted the twists away from her face and put it up in an updo. Um, I looked up reference for the edges because Mistress edges are laid down in like little S curves. Um, and uh, I also collaborated with some of the other artists on the project who were making other depictions of Mistra because there's there's like a divider image of Mistra, which um, her design is completely different. Um, but in that in that art of Mistra, there's different symbols representing the eight schools of magic. And so um, and I don't know if those symbols were official or not, but I saw that that artist did that. And I was like, that's cool. I'm going to take the symbols that you drew and put them as tattoos on my Mistra's arm to sort of like unify those two together. Um, because Mistra is the goddess of magic, you know, like illusion, what have you. She could have many forms. Um but I put um, four of the eight schools of magic on uh, one of her biceps, and then it's sort of insinuated that the other four are on the other arm, although they're not seen. Um, yeah, dope. And I had a really fun time working on this piece. It was very line art heavy. Um, actually inking the the twists in, in her hair took the longest time because I drew those by hand. Um, there are brushes that exist to draw these kinds of very repetitive shapes, but... They, I, I drew them all by hand, and that was something that I knew that I wanted to do um, because I knew that the, the hair was going to be difficult, but I wanted to, you know, pay homage to it and do it well and do it right. <laughs> and um, I will say the art in the book printed really dark. Um, the piece definitely looks better on my website in the digital form. So highly recommend going to look on it on my website, nalladraws.com. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll because include show show notes uh description for you prints so poorly that was the other thing is that like i used a lot of purple in this art and unfortunately the color purple is so difficult to print it's so hard to get purple to look right in print mm -hmm. um which is incredibly oh it sad. is yeah it is a lot more colorful digitally yeah that purple, is stark purple yeah. is so so frustrating to work with um but i knew i wanted it to be purple um, even though I was like, ugh, this is not going to print well. <laughs> yeah, it still looks incredible. Um, it's just the the printed version from what I have in my hands. And this might be like a printer issue with like, um, because it is a DM skill product. It's not like the, it's not like the team was able to really choose who they got. You know what I mean? Like kind of yeah. limited in that respect. So, um, and also on-demand printing usually isn't as high quality as yeah. a not on-demand printing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But it still looks fantastic. And the Thank digital so form is 
yeah, the digital form is just also just stunning. Um, you just get to see a bit more of the color, especially the purple, if you go look at the digital. Form. Yeah, I don't see much representation in those TTRPG books, unfortunately, for people of color. I knew that was something that we wanted to move forward with. I for more. And yeah. like when I get hired, I will usually try to pitch whatever I'm drawing as people of color when I can, where I can. Um, and I will sometimes ask clients who aren't fully settled on their character designs. Like if I get a pitch um, or like a care, um, uh, mm, an art brief and they're describing characters or whatever, I might ask them, you know, does this, does this character have to be white or could I draw them as a person of color? And usually how I ask that is like, is it important that this character be white and usually the answer is no usually they they just default to white because everyone defaults to white but i will always challenge that and just say like you know have you considered why like is it really that important to you or you know because because if 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 the character's um ethnicity is not important to the character themselves like why not draw them as a person of color and yeah that's that's something i try to do to help increase representation in whatever I whatever I paint um I got to do um two pieces really recently for um version four of the combat wheelchair that uh that Sarah's putting out um Mustang art or Mustangs art uh plural (laughs) on Twitter um they hired me to do two illustrations for a new character class that uh they wrote and um they pretty much were like just illustrate two characters um some combination of like the schools um the schools of magic that they created and two of the different mutations so i drew a satyr and a werewolf it was actually the first werewolf i ever drew um her only other instruction to me as the character designer was both the characters have to be disabled in some way, but other than that, you can draw whatever the heck you want. One of my, the werewolf character who was the school of biomancy, I think is how you say it. Um, she is this like really big, strong, buff, fat woman um, who uh, is a double amputee, one above the knee, one below the knee. And I drew her with uh, prosthetic um, blades, like the 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 prosthetic legs that um athletes use um in usually for like for um like track and field kind of things um they're definitely more active than a typical like walking leg um so i did a lot of research into what those prosthetics look like and also the difference between above the knee and below the knee amputees um and so i got to draw this really badass woman who you know is tying up her hair (laughs) getting ready to fight and she's a werewolf so she's very hairy um, and then the other character is um, a school of Oneromancy. I actually don't know how to say this word. Um, and he's a satyr. And I specifically designed him to be trans mask. Um, he has top surgery scars. And um, he is blind and has this like fantasy guide dog. And I say dog in quotes because this dog has four eyes and like four ears and a bright blue tongue. Um and uh, it was very fun to, to design like what a fantasy guide dog might be, um, balancing both like things uh, that exist in the real world, like the actual design of the harness that he holds on to is pretty much lifted exactly from our real life because it was important to me that there are things about his disability that are recognizable and tangible from our 
from our world. Um, but then fantastical elements like the actual like it's almost like a saddle on the dog's back that, you know, is has like pouches attached to it that um, a fantasy character could store more fantastical items. And then, um, of course, the satyr. I mean, he's a satyr, uh, but he's also holding um, the cane that uh, some blind folks use to um, detect the world around them. So um, and his eyes are glowing bright white because um, whatever that O word is, Oneromancy or something, uh, <laughs> is has to do with dreams. And so I thought about like how cool it would be to have like almost an Oracle-esque vibe for this character. Um, very fey, very sort of that aesthetic with a very fey looking um, by his side. And the the design and the intentionality for these designs was really important to me um, to make that representation and uh, get these characters in. And I also had a lot of fun because I've never drawn a dog before and I've never drawn a werewolf. So it was, it was a lot of firsts for me. So I had a lot of fun with that project. <laughs> yeah, I think me being a project manager, project lead for uh, a book has really been a dream come true in that when I'm working with artists, it's really fantastic and wonderful. And it feels like such a blessing. It's like I was talking to someone about this on the podcast and uh, saying how addictive it is just being in these creative projects and like seeing people's interpretation of uh, what you would like to do. Is this the drawing? Yes, it I is. just uh, okay. messaged you the uh, art. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love this. Okay. This is public, right? Yes, yes. It's, I can it's, link it. I would... All right. It'll be in the yes, show notes absolutely. if you want to take a look at it. That's for the listeners. You want to, you want to take a look <laughs> it's in, to this uh, wonderful picture is in the show notes. I love it. Uh, is that something that people can uh, can buy right now or are we still waiting on this? I think we're still waiting on it. And, and um, with the whole like OGL thing, I, I don't know what Sarah's status right. on that is. Okay, yeah, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah, we don't have to talk about OGL. It is January 11th as, as of this recording, but this episode might not drop until like March, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and did you want to, let's shift to talk about you being an art director. Yeah, of course. how that's different and how you got involved with that and uh, what you what your experience has been like thus far as an art director. Yeah, uh, so when I was in art school, way back when, uh, <laughs> I... Um, during class crits, I would always give feedback to my peers because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. But, you know, more often than not, people would just not say anything, which is like fine or whatever. But I would always offer feedback because I know that the crit process is really um, invaluable to um, art. And I was told often by my professors and my peers, like, oh, you'd make a really good art director. Like, you give really good feedback. And I was kind of like, oh, what's an art director? Like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Like, I had a, I had a, like, vague idea of what art directing was, but, you know, I didn't really know. Um, and I sat down with one of my professors one day and I was like, hey, like, what actually goes into art directing? Because this particular professor had been an art director in the past. And so I was like, hey, like, what actually is art direction? Because people keep saying that I should do this thing and I don't really know what it is um, because art direction also varies heavily depending on what industry you're in um, because like an art director for advertising is so different from art direction for games for example those titles mean very different things and so I was asking him like hey like what does this really mean what does that do um, and so he explained to me the basics of being an art director and I was like wow that actually sounds like something I'd be really good at because um, he was telling me that like good art directors have a really good eye for art. They have a really good eye for aesthetics. They are good, strong communicators, um, are able to give and receive feedback 
um, that is constructive. Um, and not only that, you have to have very good people skills, very good organizational skills. And um, because it's a leadership position, you have to have good leadership skills um, to be able to lead a team. Um, and, and generally, an art director is the person who creates and curates the visual style of whatever the heck you're working on, be it an animated film or a magazine, a book, um, or in my case, tabletop RPGs. Art directors are typically the ones who create the style guide for all of the artists. Um, sometimes, not always, they're the ones who are actually hiring the artists, going through applications, picking the people they want to work on the team, creating the style guide, and then making art briefs and assigning artists specific things. And in doing that, you know, you weigh your artist's um, strengths and weaknesses because an art director should be able to look at a portfolio and be like, oh, this artist is really strong at drawing this one thing and maybe not so strong at drawing this other thing. So when I'm assigning my briefs, you know, I'm going to assign them stuff that they're good at so that they can produce the best work they can. And then you go through the whole crit back and forth process with the artists giving um, like there's usually daily feedback cycles, depending on how quickly the artists are getting stuff back to you and basically helping to guide the artists to stay Stay in line with a style guide and to keep this is especially important if you have multiple artists working on the same thing, making sure that all of the work is cohesive together and is meeting the visual aesthetic that the art director, creative director and project leads are kind of going for. Um, and in my specific stead as art director, um, it's a lot of organizational stuff and just serving as a like a liaison between like all these different teams. Um, in uh, when I was working for Games Unbound as art director for uh, the Rumor Brokers Ledger of Names, um, as I was working with my team of artists, uh, they were designing uh, character. They were doing character portraits for uh, the NPCs that the writers were writing, and so I was basically serving as the middleman. As the artist sent me like work in progresses, I would you know give my feedback, but then I'd be sending it to the project leads, sending it to the writers who actually wrote that character for feedback. I'd be sending to the sensitivity consultants and I'd take all of those people's feedback and boil it down and then send feedback back to the artist and be like, okay, here's what the team is thinking. Um, and so it was a lot of like organizing all of that and um, tracking to make sure every artist was, you know, on track to finish by the deadlines um, and just working with everyone, no matter what their individual situations were for various like health and personal issues. Um, obviously you pad into the timeline, um, like buffer time in case stuff comes up because in the wise words of my father, always plan for failure. That's something that I learned as a child. And it, and it does sound quite pessimistic, but that is some of the best advice I've ever received. Because if you plan, if you go into everything thinking that you're going to fail, you will be more prepared if you do actually fail because you thought of that and you expected that. Um, so yeah, always plan for failure. Uh <laughs> Um, but yeah, I really, I really enjoy art directing. Um, I got the position at Games Unbound after I think one of the summer conventions I was at, maybe Gen Con, maybe one of the PAXs. I don't know what convention it was, but I met the project lead after that convention and we talked very briefly. And then over the summer, we started talking about, about the project because originally he wanted to hire me on as an artist. And I was like, yeah, cool. And then I was like, do you have an art director? And he was like, no. And I was like, do you want an art director? And he was like, I would love to hire you as an art director. And I was like, cool. And then like inside I was sweating because I was like, 
you know, everyone has told me, including my professor, you don't really normally get to be an art director until like five to 10 years into your career. Like it is a senior management position. Um, and I was fully ready to, you know, do my time and wait and eventually become an art director. But um, I was able to get experience doing it um, this soon, quote unquote, after graduating. And I fell in love with it. I really, really love art directing. And I know that this is the thing that I want to be doing. Um, and uh, now that the Games Unbound contract has ended, um, I am now art directing for all the witches. So I'm very excited for that. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, we're still on uh, sort of like we're we're not sure about timelines on that, so we don't necessarily have to talk about that. What has been something that you learned as uh, an art director, as opposed to that you didn't know even leading up to becoming an art director? What's something that surprised you about being an art director once you became that? I think like I very quickly learned about project management skills. Um, and organization, um, because I definitely struggle with organization as someone with ADHD. Um, but I very quickly learned that spreadsheets and color coding are my best friends. And um, something that uh, I definitely um, could be seen as a pro or a con is that I tend to over communicate about things. Um, I want it to be very clear um, in in the application because I put out an open call for artists for um, Games Unbound. I got about 300 applications so I had to look through all of those, look through all these portfolios and I, I could only hire 10 people out of this pool of almost 300 people that applied which was overwhelming and it was a lot um, but color coding and all of that um, was able, made it easier for me to sort through all of that stuff and then once I had my team um, tracking progress and all of that stuff. I think like I very quickly learned organizational tips and tricks and tools for uh, that sort of communication. Um, and also learning um, with each individual person that I was working with um, on the team, like their preferred communication style and how to best give them feedback that they can create the best art that they can. And I'm sort of getting across all the things I need to get across. Um, but each artist takes things differently. And so it was like kind of a trial and error um, working with all these different personalities and all these different artists um, and seeing like, you know, like this one artist like really, really thought draw overs were really useful and really helpful. And they specifically told me that and was like, I love draw overs. They really help me. So I, so I was like, all right, cool. I'll give you draw overs. So I would do that. Other artists didn't find them as helpful. So I had to be more descriptive or what have you. Um, some some artists liked when I sent specific color swatches or, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, so that's another thing is like when when you are leading a team of many different artists who work, who are from like all over the world too. So so it was kind of like I could tell um, when each of the artists were working because all throughout my day, it like around lunchtime, I'd get some messages. Around dinner time I'd get some messages. At 3 a.m. my time, I'd get some messages. So I'd wake up to messages from artists with updates and whatnot. And so it was a lot of organization on my on my end to juggle all of these incoming messages um, because we created 50 art assets within the course of a couple months. Um, and so that was a lot of back and forth with everybody. <laughs> wow. 50. Oh, damn. 50 portraits. Damn. Okay. Booyah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I see the spreadsheet growing in my mind right now. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, oh and yeah. How, and how many 
are probably in different stages at any given time and like wow. I learned how to program the little check boxes so you check a box and then that that whole square turns a color so then uh -huh. I can like visually see but then also uh -huh. I can like check it off as as people progress on their stuff it was also kind of funny because like I got to be my own art director because I also did two of the pieces in the book oh, okay. so um it was kind of funny because I was just like oh like I'm gonna get mine done super early so I can just be done with mine and then just focus on the art directing aspect so um it was kind of funny because yeah for that project i was the art director i was also one of the artists and i wrote i i wrote an npc for the book as well <laughs> um and uh yeah that was like the other thing too like specifically with that project um assigning each artist which npcs they were drawing um was this beautiful tetris puzzle that worked out perfectly <laughs> um yeah. and that was that was really nice um, but I was just trying the whole time to be upfront, um, maybe over communicating on my end just to be sure that like everyone was on the same page because I'd rather over communicate than communicate poorly because I've worked on lots of projects and, you know, communication styles vary greatly. Um, communication will make or break a project because if there's poor communication amongst project leads or from lead to the like contract worker or what have you poor communication will tank a project so i knew that i had to be on it and to over communicating is better than not um so that was sort of my that was sort of my communication style because i want to be as clear as possible and as upfront as possible so that the artist isn't surprised by anything and so that i know that i've got my bases covered and that i know and that i understand and know that they know what i mean if that makes sense <laughs> it does yeah it does i i have these sort of discussions um as the co-creator of the vineyard and working on this project um i have the great pleasure and honor of working with uh m evil for this project and their narrative design experience has really been key to me understanding how to communicate with people in order to get what we need as far as written material and uh elaine ho is our art director um, oh i love her <laughs> yeah uh, and elaine is like elaine is i uh, i hope they don't take offense by me saying this but elaine is a business bitch and i fucking love that so <laughs> i'm all about that and uh elaine is like you know knows what they're talking about and will just be very concise communicate really well and that's what i'm looking for genuinely and exactly why i hired elaine because as a project lead I don't have time to do the art director job. That's why I hired someone. So I just need someone to own that space. And I just mm -hmm. check in once in a while. I'm like, that's pretty cool art. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> looks cool. Yeah, I know. Because like, that's, that's my pitch for project managers. Because like I, I also do art consultation. Um, that's something I offer project managers. Like even if you don't end up wanting or needing an art director, what I'm willing to do for people is sit down with project managers and say, okay, like I can sit down and talk to you about your art. And because you tell me what the scope of your project is, you tell me sort of how much art do you want? What style are you looking for? And I'll be able to help you estimate how much you need to budget for art. Because I can be like, here is about what, you know, here's a range for what people might charge for that. And then you should also make sure, um, see, uh, for commercial licensing like what what you're looking for so i can tell you how much you can expect to pay for this and then um 
through the art consultations, I can help guide you towards like, oh, if this is your budget, here's the kind of art that you can expect to get from that. Or like if you have endless pockets or whatever, um, you can tell me what you want and I can tell you how much that might cost you. And I think that's incredibly useful for project managers, especially people who have no experience working with or talking to artists who have no idea what art costs because usually people who haven't interacted with artists or hired artists before usually are usually but not always are very off in terms of how much they think things are going to cost um and so i can really help like ground that and be like okay if this is what you're looking for here's how much you can expect to pay and whether or not you end up hiring me to do art direction or or to be the person that handles all of that that's something i'm willing to sit down and have a consultation meeting have a consultation meeting with um and it it you know, for an hour of my time, um, I think my rates at the moment start around $60. So like for $60, I can tell you how much your art's going to cost for an hour of my time. And that's that's something that I offer that I feel like people don't even think to to look at that because the worst thing that can happen to a project manager is for them to have like this whole idea for the project and they kickstart it and they have their money and then they're like, okay, I want to go hire artists and I have $500 to do that and here's all the art I want. And then, you know, you contact an artist and, and they're like, how much are your rates? And the artist is like, well, if you want cover art, that's going to be $800. And then you're like, well, shit. <laughs> And so something I can do is help people prepare and figure out, you know, how much is stuff going to cost? Yeah, absolutely. And I that's actually how my relationship with Amiable started was because I was looking at developing uh, my writing and my campaigns a little bit better. So I just hired him as a they were a freelancer at the time. Uh, they were interested in doing like freelance narrative consulting. I just hired him for like six hours or however much it was. And we started our working relationship that way so that when uh, we ended up connecting much later on um, for different projects, I think I applied to a job uh, with Hedger Group as their marketer for One Night Strahd. And that was how we ended up reconnecting because we had like a good working relationship from that. And honestly, I hate to say like you need money to get into the industry, but like if you're running your own project, then I do recommend what you do is you work to save up money, you squirrel that away, and then you hire someone who has experience. It'll save you so much trouble just to get a consultation, just get some help and point you in the right direction so that you understand what it is that you're doing rather than beating your head against a wall. Uh, why not hire someone for, you know, $100 today, but it's going to save you hours and hours and so much anxiety and stress to just have a professional tell you like, this is what I advise. Exactly. Yeah. And like also project manager is a is like a very specific job. And, you know, creative lead, I think a lot of people who are project leads, um, what they really want to be is a creative director, because project lead is a very specific job that requires a very specific skill set. And not everyone is cut out to be a project lead. And that's okay. Um, or project manager, sorry. And that's okay to like, just quote unquote, just be a creative director and you can hire someone who can manage everyone and can keep everyone on track and can do all of that, that those those skills that require really good communication, a really good organization, because let's face it, not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone's good at that. But if you want to have a successful project, having a successful and capable project manager is so important. And I feel like um, some people need to realize that they might not be 
cut out for that. And that's okay. But you can hire someone to be your project manager who has experience doing that. And you can be creative director. And that's that's fine. And that's perfectly okay. And then everybody gets what they want and your project will be more successful. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm right now I'm looking at my own art budget, which is uh, what Elaine put together for me. I'm just like, a lot of the time I end up, and this is just maybe something I need to work on probably, but having that other person to communicate with and work with is genuinely just so valuable because I can just go ask Elaine and be like, what do you think about this? And they will give me a professional, well-thought-out, experience-based answer. And that's mm -hmm. better than me spending hours and hours or days trying to research something to come up with a decent answer. I'd rather just work with someone who's an expert. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, Nala, what would you like to talk about before we sign off? Do you have anything in particular that you'd like to talk about? Yes, I do. Thank you, first of all, so much for having me on the show. I have been Nala J. Wu. My pronouns are they, them, and I am on Twitter at Nala Wu and at Nala Draws if you want to see my art. I am also at Nala Draws on any other social media that I have, including TikTok, itch.io for games and character sheets and that kind of thing. If you're interested in seeing my portfolio and or hiring me, uh, interested in getting me on your projects, my portfolio can be found on knowledgedraws.com. Any inquiries can be sent to knowledgedraws at gmail.com. Uh, besides art and art direction, I also am a voice actor, sensitivity consultant, and a TTRPG actual play stream performer. I am currently on a longer running show called Itaewon by Night. We are the first and only all Asian cast playing Vampire the Masquerade on stream. We air on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. over on Bad House RPG. If you want to get caught up, our first season VODs are posted on YouTube. If you search Itaewon by Night, it is on Going Crit RPG's channel. The second show I would love to plug is The Mysteries of Ravenswood. We are an all-trans cast playing Kids on Brooms for Pride Month, and we are airing Monday nights at 7pm over on Queen's Court Games. The last thing I would love to plug is that I'm currently the art director for All the Witches. All the Witches, if you haven't heard of it, is an original tabletop role-playing game system and setting featuring witches in a fantasy land where you can learn magic from your covens or schools, you travel the world, and you can help those who have fallen under the influence of a dark magic in the world called discordance. Come check us out on Twitter, All the Witches underscore, and I'm super excited to be bringing this game to life uh, as art director and i cannot wait for you all to see what we are working on the team is full of super super diverse uh bipoc and queer creators um and i i i'm so excited uh but yeah that's pretty much it for me uh again best places to follow me and keep up with all the stuff that i am doing is on my twitter at nala Wu, and i am super excited for this summer there's a lot of really cool stuff happening so yes follow me on there and uh again thank you so much for having me on this podcast <laughs>